Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And it is crunch time here at Making of a Historian Manor. I have read four books today, and this is my second podcast, and all I do is chug coffee, pace around the house, and think about how many, you know, ideas I can shove into my head uh, by the time that the exam comes in a little less than a month. Right now, we're going to be continuing with uh, our mini-series, Social Life in the Anthropocene. If you have not already listened to the previous episodes, it might be a good opportunity to do so. You probably won't miss out on a ton, but I'm trying in this mini-series to arrange the podcasts in the sort of way that I might do if I gave a lecture class. So hopefully the episodes build one off of the other and give you the kind of context that you might need to kind of get the full picture of what I'm talking about. So now we're moving on to a new part of this mini-series. So it might be a good time to take a backwards glance over what uh, we've been talking about. I've described a number of technological and ecological developments that allows for the creation of the modern city. So first, uh, we're dealing with a new kind of situation with agricultural production, energy, and global trade. So there's more food than ever because of agricultural improvements like triennial crop rotation, new kinds of plows, Uh, just more intensity of work, enclosures, capitalist agriculture, and stuff like that. Also, people have an increasing access to cheaper and cheaper energy. The big one here is the expanding coal market, but there's not only coal. There's also uh, what is called ghost acres, so uh, agricultural areas that lie outside of a country that they can still exploit. You can also get whale oil, sugar, and also we have the world being knit together by ever-widening circles of global trade. These three novel things, cheap food, cheap energy, and global trade, encourage the development of new forms of organizations. Not merely large factories, but also the creation of specialized urban service sectors, also the creation of an archipelago of voluntary associations, and also the creation of increasingly concentrated businesses. These organizations are now uh, organized by a new creature, the manager, who uses new kinds of technologies of control and communication, like the circular letter, the typewriter, the pigeonhole desk, and the filing cabinet. Finally, we've looked at the transportation infrastructure that's kind of like the operating system of this whole big global system. The spread of turnpike roads and railroads and canals and steamships, and we've seen their cultural implications. And these developments created the opportunity for new kinds of cities bigger than ever before, more connected than ever before, filled with migrants, incredibly productive, with tons of innovation, new ideas, loneliness, crime, trouble, and disorder. The next few episodes 
what I'll be doing is I'll be looking at the novel problems that people living in these cities faced and how these people overcame them. I do this because I think that the solutions in some ways lay a map for how we live in the modern world today. But I want to just point out that I, I don't want to tell a story of a simple, straightforward blossoming of a new world where you get a bunch of technological developments, you get big cities, and then bam, you get everything that's good about modernity. First, not all of it's good, but also a lot of what happens is a back and forth process that is not necessarily clearly determined by the new technology and new social organizations uh, that occur. For example, you know, trains allowed people to travel faster, but it's not necessary that they, you know, led to a quickening speed of the soul of Europe. The rise of cities, similarly, did not, you know, drive a wedge into the hearts of people sundering nature from society. And sometimes these developments did exactly the opposite of what people wanted them to do. Uh, tomorrow we'll talk about how the rise of the flush toilet in the 19th century uh, developed so that houses would not uh, smell of shit. In turn, led to the rise of cholera in London. Similarly, there's times when processes have unexpected heroes, like when the new industrial meatpacking industry starts to push new methods of recycling. So today, uh, we're going to be talking about the novel problems of the big city. And I wish that I uh, had better notes about demography because I know I read a ton of stuff about the actual size of the cities, I think even yesterday. Uh, but right now I can only speak in vague generalities. When I do more revision uh, in a week or two, I'll make sure to copy down these statistics. But what I can tell you is that we get a incredibly novel explosion in the number of really, really, really big cities. In the 18th century, London was the biggest city in Europe, and over the 19th century, it kept on getting bigger. But what's really interesting is that there were tons of big cities that developed in the 19th century, some of them developing from absolutely nothing. You have Chicago, which in the beginning of the 19th century was just kind of a crummy place by the river, when in the middle of the 19th century, it was a huge boomtown, one of the first towns, if not the first, to get skyscrapers. And it wasn't just London and Chicago, but you had New York, Melbourne, Paris, Berlin, Tokyo. All of these cities grew incredibly large, and they posed new challenges to the people living there. And so I want to talk about one set of challenges in this episode. Uh, and we're going to separate it, like all episodes have been, into two parts. The first will lay out the problem in general, and the second will show how uh, the problem affected women in particular. So the big problem of these new cities is that they were very dense, and they were full of strangers. The new city is unusual. It requires you to constantly read it. You can't be on autopilot in the new city. 
You need to know where to go, how to move through the crowds of people, how to read the street signs, how to read the people, how to know that a person is who they say they are, that when they wear a nice suit, they're not a con man, that when they're, you know, in crummy clothes, that they're not a criminal, but merely a beggar. That when they're trustworthy and with a smiling open face, they really are trustworthy and not some evangelical or a thief. What neighborhoods you're welcome in and what neighborhoods you're not. If you look at 19th century urban travel guides, and it's important to note that there were 19th century urban travel guides, people were going to the city for fun, they're often filled with this kind of information, giving people a sense of how to read the city. For example, uh, one that I read suggested that women should not go to Pall Mall, where there's tons of gentlemen's clubs, because at any time of the day, uh, if they're alone, they could be harassed by drunken clubmen. And just as the urban dweller learned how to read the city, and sometimes even you know, got a sense of the city as a aesthetic object that could be appreciated like, you know, a walk through nature. This is the legendary flaneur, the, the urban stroller who goes down the city streets and admires everything. Just as we learn how to read the city, we also learn how to let the city read us, how to make us legible in this peculiar situation where we're both anonymous and highly visible. We learn what clothes we can wear to signal the kind of status that we believe we have. We learn how to carry ourselves through public places in ways that get the right kind of attention. We learn where to go to let us be the people that we want to be. And it's this last lesson of the city that I want to talk about. The creation of novel social spaces that are increasingly specialized, which allow urban dwellers to have new kinds of social life. And it gets to a significant problem of the city that we often don't talk about, and that's that the city can be really, really lonely. There's Lots of strangers. The city is filled with strangers. Most of the people in the city are people who you will never ever see. If you see a person, chances are you're not going to see them again, even if they live in your neighborhoods. And the thing about cities in the 18th and 19th centuries is that people did not have the social technology that allowed them to trust people easily. In, you know, let's say the uh, textbook village, you knew everybody. And if you didn't know them, you'd know somebody who knew them. Or you could read them by their clothes, because if they were wearing nice clothes, they were upper class, and if they were wearing bad clothes, they were not. But in the city, all these distinctions disappear. Everybody is a stranger. Clothes can be, you know, got secondhand or stolen, or they could look nice, but they're actually really cheap, so you can't read a person's clothes the same way. And you don't know as many people to get the necessary social networks to do all of the things that people need to do. And when scholars talk about this, because we tend to be kind of serious in our scholarship, we think about the practical limitations of this. The fact that people can't get loans or can't, you know, uh, uh, find a business partner. But it's also true that people 
in this sort of situation are missing out on socializing, on friends. They're missing out on the, you know, day-to-day effective interaction that makes life worth living. And in the 18th and 19th centuries, these urban dwellers started to develop these kinds of organizations that allowed them to make these effective relationships with strangers in the city. And this is actually the subject of my research. It's what I really care about, my big, big project. And they are the clubs and societies. So we've talked about it this a bit over the podcast, so I don't want to belabor it. But what I want to uh, emphasize is that as the 18th century turned to the 19th century, and as these cities grew increasingly large and increasingly dense, the clubs and societies grew in specialization. There got to be many more of them that did many very, very highly specialized things. They grew in number. They grew in size. They grew in organization. We get, if you look through club records, an increasing number of rules, an increasing amount of regalia, an increasing number of official positions, some of them paid. You even, in the 19th century, get a peculiar profession developing, the professional clubman, the professional club secretary, whose job it is for their whole life to manage the activities of various clubs. And this process leads to something peculiar. People join clubs originally to get friends, to have an effective moment with people that they might not be close to. And I want to emphasize that they have clubs so that they can have effective moments with people they don't want to get closer to. In the club, the benefit is not just that you get to see your friends, but you get to see people who might be acquaintances, who you like, but you don't want to be on friendly terms with, and you get to meet strangers who've been vetted by the club organization as being people you could potentially trust. But the important thing is that you don't need to put the social effort in to make friends with every single person. And this develops what we call social capital. This creates these social networks that are incredibly large much larger than went before. And this gives people social power. It allows them to gain skills, to meet business contacts, to gain status, to share information. And this, I think, is part of the secret sauce of urban modernity. I think it's what makes our lives so different to the lives of people before us, is that we are heirs to this development of large networks of acquaintances and friends and colleagues who are interested in particular specialized things. It allows us to develop our curiosities, our ideas. It allows us to work on topics of collective action and, you know, really, really develop these specialized and weird niche interests. And even though I've just spent, what, the last 10 minutes, you know, singing the praises of these urban social clubs... I want to insist that there is a big problem with them. And the big problem is that as they grew more important, they grew more boring. As they grew more important, people joined them increasingly to get what the club did, not to belong to the club for the sheer sense of belonging itself. 
If you go to a club in 1700, let's say, like a London social club, you go there because you want on Tuesday nights to go to the, the you know, the King's Arms and uh, get drunk with these 10 people. Maybe you want to talk about, you know, your mutual interest in the Newfoundland fishing, but that's a secondary thing. As these clubs get increasingly specialized and increasingly powerful, people join them just to get the uh, extrinsic value of the club. People join anti-slavery societies not because they want to rub shoulders with anti—you know—similar people who want to end slavery, but because they want to end slavery. People join um, societies for uh, temperance not only so that they can get a social circle that people who don't drink, but because they want to make everybody else not drink. And this shift from the intrinsic pleasure of society to the extrinsic value of collective action is a really big one. Because we end up spending most of our lives in organizations that have inherited this kind of pattern. And one of the big complaints that we have about those lives is that they're boring and dull and we spend all of our times doing practical things and not enough time enjoying them. And if you look at this from an ecological perspective, it looks really silly because we spend all this time working, making stuff that people don't need. Since I'm talking probably to educated middle and upper class Americans, I will just take you know the, the bold step and say, most of you probably don't make anything at all in your jobs. Most of you probably are what is, you know, euphemistically called symbol manipulators, people who just, you know, move bits around or move words around or, you know, are lawyers. And I think that if we want to get at the heart of what troubles urban modern capitalism, we can get at it through looking at the shift from joining groups to make friends to joining groups to do stuff. And there's another problem as well. So I've, I've really emphasized that this, uh, you know, diverse social networks create social capital for people. But not everybody was able to join clubs. As clubs gain, you know, gained in power, they also grew more, uh, you know, selective about who could become a member. And there was one really, really common exclusion, and that was on gender. Most clubs did not allow women. I'm going to make a small digression because I can and talk a little bit about why I think that this is. It's peculiar because the kinds of religious fraternal organizations that clubs developed from in the 17th century had a lot of female involvement in them, even though we call them fraternal clubs. And so people have offered a lot of explanations, and none of them I find convincing. Some people say that a lot of clubs met in taverns, and they were predominantly male. Um, but then you get the problem of, well, American clubs also met in taverns, and in America the taverns were not predominantly male, so why, why is that? Some people say that it's because clubs were homosocial spaces that allowed men to get out of their domestic spaces, to, to basically get away from their wives who they didn't like. And that certainly is true in the 19th century, but it's not true in the 18th century when this pattern of gender-divided clubs happens. I think that clubs became gender-divided 
because they were maximizing along a different axis of equality. Clubs were indeed quite interested in equality, but in the 18th century, they were interested in a different kind of equality. There were a lot of divisions in British society between different political parties, between um, different social stations, what we might know as class, between different religious denominations or religious sects. And people were deeply troubled by this because they had a view of society that was not divided. We think of society as divided when we think of you know the u.s census that great statistical you know uh, monument to america we naturally make a cross tab out of it we divide it up into age race class gender ge geography but this was not the 18th century way they more likely saw the world as a hierarchy as an organic whole arranged from top to bottom in one seamless unit and the fact that this seamless unit was split up and down by divisions was disturbing to them. And so, 18th century clubs often worked to emphasize equality of station, equality of religion, equality of uh, politics. And it did this by bracketing out individuality, by saying in the club, what we do is club stuff, and you kind of ignore everybody's social position. But to do that, I think they needed to keep women out. Because if women came and you had these, you know, mixed social gatherings, mixed meaning mixed in station, mixed in religion, you could have these social gatherings turn into marriage markets. And in marriage markets, you can't bracket out the social positions because marriage is a deeply economical relationship. When you marry somebody, you're marrying into their family, you're marrying into their productive unit, and so you can't ignore who they are. The worry, of course, is that rich women would get preyed upon by poor men. And the worry also is that if these spaces become marriage markets, then they will be filled with people putting on airs and putting on masks and not being truthful with one another. And that's why I think there is this initial distinction in gender. Anyway, have, having talked about that, let's shift gears and talk about the female side of this, because I've just described a world in which some men some working class, a lot of middle class, and a lot of upper class men could gain new kinds of social capital through their involvement in clubs and societies. Well, what of women? Women were kept out of this. Furthermore, there's an increasing sense of what's called the separation of the spheres, that the man's space is outside the home in the public sphere where he can make money and interact with people, deal with politics, be reasonable, uh, and be kind of hard. And then the woman's space is within the home, where she's able to be the angel of the house who creates order, cleanliness, education, and culture for her family. She manages the servants, keeps out dirt, manages the children, and eases the troubles of the husband. And the thing to note straight off the bat is that this separation of the spheres was, like we might call in the 21st century, aspirational. Middle-class families could afford often to keep women in the home, and upper-class families certainly could afford to keep men in the home and not have them work. But working-class families who made up the vast bulk of the population, about 80 to 90% of it, depending on how you count it, 
uh, most of them had to have women in the workforce. And, you know, if the dominant ideology is that women belong in the home and not out in work, and children belong in school and not out in work, it is undermining of the respect of working class culture when working class women have to go out and go to the textile mill or, you know, take in laundry or work in service. Similarly, this middle class and upper class home that we're talking about, this separation of the spheres, contains workers in it. It's no longer a productive unit like it was back in the 18th and 17th century. It no longer makes stuff. You no longer have women making beer and cheese and, you know, cotton fabrics in their home if they can help it. But it still has workers. Workers, mainly female servants, whose job it is to keep everybody in the clean, well-lit, you know, well-fed, warm comfort that the bourgeois expects. But I want to emphasize that we shouldn't think of the separate spheres home as a straitjacket. That there are opportunities there as well for there to be uh, this creation of overlapping social circles of increasingly broad networks of, of strangers and acquaintances. They're just limited and constrained. So first, there were an increasing number of spaces in the city that were open especially to women, although these were often contested, especially in moments of public danger. Some of these were department stores, which uh, were novel developments uh, starting in the middle of the uh, 19th century, because you could go there just to window shop, just to look at things, just to appreciate the items there. Things in the department store had a low margin. They were not marked up a lot. People expected to do a high volume of sales. And very peculiarly, they had the prices on everything. It wasn't a place that you went to negotiate. You just went and bought a thing. You picked it up and you took it to the register and you paid that much money, often on credit. You also had uh, new uh, cultures around music, around theater. Uh, lots of uh, uh, sports were actually opening up to women, particularly uh, tennis and biking. But like I said, in some moments in time, there was cultural panics about you know, the new arrival of women in these social spaces, especially uh, what's called the new women, which we might think of as like, you know, bourgeois hipsters or, uh, uh, you know, yuppies who were uh, more fashionably dressed, sometimes more sexually liberated, knowledgeable, often willing to, you know, argue with men. And in some moments, like the Jack the Ripper scandal in the 1870s, it was thought that the city itself was dangerous for women, that it posed a sexual danger for women, that in those dark street corners, in that maddening variety, in the diversity of the city, there lurked danger. There lurked people who wanted to remove the virtue away from women. And it, you know, it helped this story that there was a really, you know, stark difference in sexual morality between the upper and middle and, let's say, respectable lower classes and the rest of the lower classes. Uh, in the beginning of the 19th century, there's very low rates of working class marriage. Uh, there's often, more often, you know, situations of concubinage uh, or, you know, what we might think of as dating, where people would have sex and have kids without necessarily going off to the church and tying the knot. 
But the city remained open to women. And it remained open, of course, in a virtual way through the increasing amount of printed materials, magazines and books and newspapers uh, and music sheets and, you know, theater guides. All of these things that we take for granted are now, you know, coming into the home. The home now has a library. When you're at home, you can read books. You can have, you know, the latest Charles Dickens read to you. There is an increasing amount of public life that can be undertaken virtually. You don't need to, you know, go off to the theater shows to have an opinion on all of the latest uh, uh, theater. You just have to get the newspaper and read the reviews and know enough to make an opinion. You don't need to go out to experience the cultural life of the city when you can read all of the latest books and magazines from the comfort of your own home. And similarly, there were parts of the home that were open up to the world, where people could make, you know, similar to clubs, controlled social spaces that let in parts of the public. The parlor, for instance, this big front room decorated to the hilt, always kept clean, used only for special occasions, was this area where the public was welcomed in. It was where dead bodies were shown uh, in some time periods where if you had a wake, that's where you would go to lie and rest and have people visit you as the parlor. The door would be open and you could go in, you know, if you were a man on the street. But the parlor was also where people entertained. You could go uh, and talk to women and family members and husbands and, and, and brothers in the parlor, play some cards, discuss things. And here we can imagine there being a kind of sense of domestic urban modernity that increases as the trials of the middle class home reduce. In this domestic modernity, you might not have as much free willing, you know, and drunken socializing as in the club, but you can still get networks of people who are connected to other networks that allow the kind of social bridging and creation of social capital that is important in the modern city. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of a Historian. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, tweet about us, post us on Reddit, uh, send me an email. Uh, think really, really hard about what you imagine that I look like. Send waves to some part of the Bay Area, psychic waves that will reach me through the ether and say, Brendan, you're doing a good job. And then pause and snap your fingers and I will get that message. Special thanks as always go to Jonathan Lear who made the music. Go to his band camp and give him money. And thanks to Duncan Barton for the image. I will see you guys tomorrow where we're going to be talking about uh, multiple kinds of poop and trash and other urban nuisances and how we can relate those to ecology. Bye.